This is Calgary Today with Angela Cocott on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Good Tuesday afternoon. Ooh, kind of a cloudy gray day, isn't it? Well, we did expect that. I think right now, as Darcy's saying, around 18 degrees. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. It has been a while since we have talked about the opioid or fentanyl crisis. I would love to think that's because the problem has gone away, but I know that that would be short-sighted because we still hear of overdoses in our province. And that's why I wanted to talk about the topic again, but with a, a different twist, because those who have fatal overdoses, we've, we've learned before, it wasn't as if they did it intentionally. Sometimes it's someone trying one drug, thinking they've got one thing and finding out that it's not. And then in a lot of cases, it is someone dealing with real pain and they become addicted to the painkiller And sadly, sometimes they have an accidental overdose. My guest this half hour is saying that if you are dependent on any high-dose prescription opioids, you should also have a naloxone kit on hand with you at all times. Dr. David Gerlink is the head of clinical pharmacology toxicology at Sunnybrook Health Science Center in Toronto, joins us today. Hello, Dr. Gerlink. Hi there. First of all, am I saying your last name correctly? Close enough, your, your link, but uh, I, I get it all I, in a different way. No, you know what I was wondering? Was it a silent J? So I'm going with your link as well. Um, Dr. Yearlink, give me an idea of what's happening in Ontario because we have been focusing on BC and Alberta in the last, well, I feel like it's been the last couple of years when we talk about the opioid crisis. Uh, what is the situation in Ontario? Well, it, it varies across the country, and uh, Ontario's got nowhere near the numbers of deaths per capita that um, the BC has. I mean, the problem is clearly greater in BC and Alberta, so you're right to focus on that. I, we're in the vicinity of somewhere between seven to eight hundred, seven and eight hundred deaths uh, per year. We don't have data from 2016 yet; we're a bit behind. You know, BC I think is on track for somewhere between 1,300 and 1,500 deaths this year. It's really quite a staggering toll, and these are just the deaths. It's important to realize there are plenty of other harms that opioids can cause, um, including to people who are taking them for pain. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's fair to speculate that we across Canada, we're going to lose somewhere on the order of 3,000 people this calendar year to opioids. Uh, now we've got to talk about the opioids because we often just focus on fentanyl, but that is just the, the tip of the iceberg when it comes to opioid use, correct? Yeah, it's a multifaceted crisis, uh, and it's true uh, that most of the people who are dying are people who have addiction, and they are dying in large part because they are not quite sure what they're using, whether it's what they think is heroin or uh, what they think is an OxyContin tablet, when in fact it's packed full of fentanyl or some other related compound generally imported from China, but even people who are really tolerant and, and are used to high doses of opioids can be killed by a single tablet or a single wrong injection. That's one aspect of the crisis, but there's, there's, there are other aspects as well. And, you know, one of the concerning aspects that uh, I think has sort of gotten lost in the, in the fentanyl uh, talk is the fact that we still have tens of thousands of Canadians who are on opioids for chronic pain at very, very high doses. I'm talking more than well, it depends who you ask, but certainly more than 200 milligrams of morphine or equivalent per day, that is, um, that is a dose that for many people um, can 
cause more trouble than it actually uh, cause more harm than than, than benefit. Uh, and the higher the dose goes, the higher the risk of side effects. And uh, the the piece that I think led you to call me was a, a comment I made in the Globe and Mail a week or two ago, making the argument that these people, even though they don't necessarily have addiction per se, um, could in some instances have their lives saved by having naloxone in the home and someone trained to administer it. And yeah, I definitely want to go in that direction. But uh, before we do, I still want to understand sort of the whole fentanyl issue because it has been a while since we've talked about it. And I wanted to make sure our listeners were on the same wavelength as I am. And I'm I'm glad you talk about the prescription uh, for pain because I, I know invariably I'm going to get texts from people who have lost loved ones. They weren't street addicts. They weren't homeless people. You know, the, the typical picture of what we think a, a drug user is or an addict is, a lot of times we hear from wives who have lost husbands, husbands who have lost wives and loved ones because they had a, some type of incident that caused such pain and they were prescribed the opioids. So uh, I wanted to make sure that we clarified mm-hmm. that. And and even when we started to talk about the fentanyl crisis, because it's been a number of a few years now, can you remind my listeners, because wasn't it because there was a concern of the OxyContin addiction that people were having, and so it was an effort to make sure that they weren't abusing OxyContin and went to fentanyl. Can well, you yeah. remind me of that? Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts here. So let me yeah. just sort of let it, give, give you the sort of the 25 years ago, let's say 1992, if you went to a doctor with back pain or hip pain or whatever, it would be very unlikely that he or she would give you a prescription for a, a strong opioid like morphine or oxycodone or hydromorphone for your pain. We just didn't do it. I was a pharmacist back at that time, and when someone came to the pharmacy with a prescription for morphine, it was almost always because they had cancer. Mm. Um, but in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, early 2000s, um, there came a push to use opioids, strong opioids, much more aggressively for chronic pain. And that's in part because we don't have a lot of good treatments for chronic pain. And we have a, it's, a, it's a very common and a very serious problem. Um, but in an effort to get doctors to be more comfortable using drugs that they had historically avoided, um, the, uh, the message that we got was that not only were these drugs effective, but they could be used safely. And that message came from um, pain specialists. It came from professional organizations dedicated to the advancement of pain care. It came from um, you know, other groups. But behind each of those was uh, very often a lot of money, uh, a lot of drug company money, companies that um, have sold tens of billions of dollars worth of opioids mm. uh, as a result of these efforts. And so what, what we saw, what the last 15 or so years have seen is a, is a real culture change in medical practice where doctors prescribe opioids much more freely and often at extraordinarily high doses. You know, what we frequently see, and this is, this is where I think the real problem is, uh, is that when someone starts on opioids and they might get some improvement in their pain. But after some time passes, after a month or two or three goes by, the pain's worse again. And this is just the opioids losing their effectiveness. This is a well-established phenomenon. And we were taught that the thing to do was to go up on the dose. And so we did that. And I did it myself, actually, um, because we were focusing on getting the pain under control, not realizing that what we were doing is actually somewhat dangerous. Mm. And so in 2012, Fast forward a little bit here. In 2012, the thing that happened with OxyContin is that the manufacturer, Purdue Pharma in Canada, 
took the old tablet off the market and replaced it with a new tablet called OxyNeo. And that new tablet was much more difficult to tamper with. Um, you, it's the same drug and the same dose, but it wasn't in a format that could be crushed and snorted. One of the problems with the old tablet was that people who wanted to misuse it would just take it and crush it. They'd take a credit card or a driver's license and they'd powderize it and they would snort it or they would dilute it with some water and they would inject it because they'd get a heroin-like high from doing that. So, so, you know, 2010, 2012, 2015, we were really starting to see the, um, the harm that was the result of our unfettered prescribing of opioids. And, um, and, we, the, and the pendulum begun to, began to swing the other way. Um, when Purdue made that move and took the easily abused oxy off the market and replaced it with a new product, um, people shifted to other things. Mm. They shifted to hydromorphone, they shifted to um, uh, fentanyl, and what, what, the reason why the fentanyl crisis is as big as it is is because there is now a huge market for opioids. There's always been a market for opioids, but the market... The street market for opioids now is much, much greater than it has ever been, and that is a direct result of our of our prescribing over the past, you know, uh, two decades. And and so, uh, so, organized crime in particular, people who want to make some money, you know, you can for five or ten thousand dollars, you can get an awful lot of fentanyl shipped to you from China, and you can package that. You can you know, put it into pills with a pill press. You can put it into heroin. You can add it to cocaine. You can add it to meth. Um, you're not trying to kill the user, but you're you're trying to um, increase your profit margin. And that you know the the, the people who are using these drugs will um, will take that chance because the alternative to it, it, it is to go into opiate withdrawal, which can really be quite horrible. And so OxyNeo is still prescribed then because that was the replacement from the OxyContin. Yeah, it depends where you go. So in Ontario, so so. Um, Ontario's public drug program elected to not pay for OxyNeo for most people. They grandfathered some people who'd been OxyContin, but, mm-hmm. but what we saw mostly is people going to hydromorphone, which is an even more potent opioid, and people going to fentanyl too. Um, so OxyNeo is, uh, you know, while it's less abusable by, yes. by the nasal route or by the injection route, it's still completely abusable. It's one of the concerns I've got is, is this perception that these, they're called abuse deterrent or tamper-resistant opioids. They are still perfectly abusable, and uh, you know the most common root of abuse is taking the stuff by mouth. And you can chew an oxyneo tablet and still get a pretty good kick out of it. Um, and even if you are a what's what patients will often refer to themselves as legitimate pain patients, I'm not addicted. I'm taking my pills as directed. They're helping me. Um, you, you can still get into an awful lot of trouble taking opioids like oxyneo and hydromorphone as your doctor prescribe them. You know, you're not taking extra tablets, you're not getting early refills, you're not double doctoring, you're just doing what your doctor told you to do. And as the dose goes up, that can really become quite quite dangerous, whether or not it's a tamper-resistant product. You wish we could go back 25 years to when we didn't have these kind of prescriptions? Well, it's a loaded question. I mean, a bit of yes and no. I, I, the, the no comes from the fact that I think that there are some people out there who can uh, do okay on opioids long-term. Um, we don't know who they are at the outset of therapy. We can't identify them. Um, but I think when you keep the dose low and you, uh, you know, choose patients cautiously and you monitor them appropriately, um, I think you can, you know, you, the ultimate goal of giving somebody a drug, um, and I'll use pain medicine as an example, the goal of giving somebody a pain medicine isn't simply relieving their pain. The goal is 
trying to afford the patient more benefit than harm from their medicine. And of course, pain relief is subsumed under benefit, mm-hmm. as is improved quality of life and improved function and return to work and all those things that people with pain want to have. But there are so many side effects of these drugs that are, that are, that are occult. I mean, we all know that overdoses and deaths are a side effect, but you know, what if, you know, what if the, a person's depression or what if their falls or what if their sleep problems or what if their car accidents or what if their pain itself was from the medicine and in, in the wrong patient these drugs can do exactly those things they can even make pain worse in some people and it's it's really hard to disentangle at, at the individual patient level whether or not they are being helped more than harmed so yeah. when you ask the question would you rather have it go back 25 years? What, what I'd like to is I'd like to be, be in a scenario where we use opioids more judiciously. We start them less readily and we escalate them to these crazy high doses much less often than we have been doing. No. Uh, but I think um, I wouldn't want to go back to 1992 where we didn't use them ever in chronic pain because I think that would be, that'd be too much of a pendulum swing. Dr. Yearling, I want to take a break because, yes, I brought you on talking about the whole idea of having naloxone kits. And up until now, we've heard of our provincial government saying they want to make sure they're available to EMS, to some universities, certain settings. But the whole idea of making sure that anyone who is on a prescription of an opioid having a kit as well. Dr. Yearling is my guest this half hour, and we are talking about opioids. Haven't talked about them for a while, and I'd love to hear from you at 3.30. I definitely We'll be opening up the phone lines, 403-974-8255, the number to call or text. Back with Dr. Yearlink after this. And we are talking about opioids. Of course, in the past, we have focused on fentanyl, but of course, there are other ones as well that can uh, cause addictions. And then sometimes in those addictions, it can be fatal overdoses. But to be clear, Dr. Yearlink is my guest, Dr. David Yearlink. He is the head of clinical pharmacology, toxicology at Sunnybrook Health Science Center in Toronto. Dr. Yearlink, I just want to be clear because I'm getting a couple of texters saying, wait, you're saying just because I use a painkiller that I'm an addict. No, this is there. there is just certain situations where this happens and that's why we're talking about it, correct? Yeah, this, I mean, this is really important. Um, and even people, um, addiction is a, is a distinct phenomenon. Yeah. Um, the, let's say that um, you're, my pa- you're my patient and I put you on something like OxyContin or fentanyl or hydromorphone. And uh, you take it as directed. And after, you know, a month of therapy or after three months of therapy, um, you know, you have been doing okay. Um, you're going to be physically dependent on the drug. And what I mean by that is if we were to suddenly take it away, um, you'd get sick. You would feel horrible. You would have abdominal pain. You'd have generalized muscle pain. You'd have diarrhea. You'd be yawning. It's a miserable experience. Um, You would not be addicted. It's not correct to call you... I don't use the word addict, Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't be correct to say that you're suffering from addiction. Addiction implies um, loss of control over drug use and continued use you know, compulsion to keep using and a continued use despite knowing that you're being harmed. So someone, for example, who smokes is addicted to nicotine. They, are, they know they're being harmed. They're doing it anyway. It's not rocket science. But there's a, there's a distinction between dependence and addiction that isn't subtle, um, although people dispute it. But my point is that you know, the people who are at risk of dying from opioids aren't only those with addiction. I have personally cared for, um, I don't know, certainly a large number of people who've had accidental overdoses related to taking opioids 
as prescribed by their doctor, often a pain doctor. Um, and frequently it's a matter of maybe they've taken an extra dose here and there or they've combined it with a sedative, a sleeping pill, an anxiety pill, or a few drinks. Um, that's a one plus one equals ten kind of phenomenon. Mm. It's a very dangerous thing to get into, and, and it's a dose-related issue. So if somebody is on you know, a couple of Tylenol 3s a day, it's not going to happen to them, but someone who's on high doses of oxy or hydromorphone or fentanyl, it can for sure happen. And that's why I think having naloxone in the home, there's no downside. It's a very, very safe drug. And if you never use it, fine. But um, but it literally could be life-saving to, to people. I know I've got, um, it was the provincial government that makes sure naloxone kits are available at pharmacies so you can just go and buy one. And in the event that that idea then, if you are prescribed an opioid, do you think that almost doctors should say, and here is the prescription for your naloxone kit as well? So that, I think that the, the answer to that is it depends, right? So I, I think the the pharmacist and the physician should encourage the use of naloxone most in people who are on really high doses of opioids. Mm. So if someone is on, for example, um, you know, 80 milligrams of OxyContin twice a day or OxyNeo or, you know, high doses of hydromorphone or, or high doses of the fentanyl patch, yeah, I think they should. And I don't think there's a good reason not to have it in the home. Um, it's not stigmatizing. It, 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 people with chronic pain have it's been studied. I mean, they're willing to uh, accept the idea that maybe having naloxone around isn't, um, isn't a bad idea. And it's not, you know, not especially expensive. Um, if, on the other hand, the person's on low doses or they take, the drug, take their opioid intermittently, then no, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. What does naloxone do? Because it's another drug, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. So it's the reversal agent. So if you think of something like fentanyl or hydromorphone or oxycodone, these are all opioids, think of them as a key. And that key fits into a lock. And that lock in your brain and your spinal cord is called an opioid receptor. Um, this, this is how these drugs achieve their beneficial effects, pain relief and so on, and their pleasurable effects, their euphoria and, 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 and everything else they do. Um, what naloxone does is it effectively comes in and it boots the key out of the lock mm. uh, and takes its place for a little while. And th- that is life-saving if the... Um, if the opioid has caused the person to lose consciousness and have their breathing slow. I mean, the reason we get so worried about opioid overdose is what happens is um, the person becomes progressively less alert and they're unconscious and their breathing slows and then it stops. And um, when that happens, your organs, your brain in particular, the organs don't get oxygen and you die. And so this is why giving naloxone promptly in someone who is got an opiate overdose and it's difficult to rouse uh, is, is so important. Is it easy to administer? It's a piece of cake. I mean, you can, you can, there's different routes to administer it. And probably the easiest route is um, through a nasal spray. That particular product is quite expensive, but um, there's also these kits where you can basically draw, use a syringe and drop an ampule, you know, pop open an ampule, drop the naloxone, and just give it. It's a little bit... Um, you know, I say it's easy because it's, you know, it's uh, for someone who's never used a needle or an ampule yeah. before, it can be a little bit intimidating. Yeah. But one of the things that pharmacists will do is they'll show you how to go about using it. They'll show you how to pop open the amp. It's, it's very easy. They'll show you how to drop the medicine into the syringe and how to give it. But in an emergency, you can see how somebody who doesn't have um, the training, detailed training yeah. or hasn't popped open a thousand amps before might be a bit panicky. Uh, a, a nasal spray would be the other option.
With that nasal spray, let's say I'm a mother and I find my son having those symptoms. Could I put the do the nasal spray even though he may not be responsive or you know one yeah, of those symptoms? You could. So you know the classic picture of an opiate overdose is, is someone who is not not you know assuming they haven't died yet. I mean they're they're sleepy yeah. and then they're unrousable, and you will see them breathing very slowly, often very noisily. They might breathe once or twice a minute with these horribly loud, really. Um, uh, you, they're, they're audibly different from normal breathing, and that is a real warning sign. This is this is the person's brain, the respiratory center in the brain, being told you don't need to breathe anymore by the fentanyl or by the hydromorphone. Mm. And uh, it's literally it, it's like Lazarus. I mean, they will just wake up, um, uh, you know, within a minute or two of being given the naloxone, depending on how you how you've given it. Um, and it's an extremely safe drug. I mean, the only side effect, it's safer than aspirin. The only side effect of naloxone is that in someone who is tolerant, or sorry, dependent on opiates, someone who's been on opiates for a long time, they'll go into withdrawal, which is, again, it's unpleasant, but it's temporary and it, it beats being dead. Yeah, exactly. Dr. Yearling, uh, thanks so much for starting this conversation, getting lots of texts, and I'm going to continue it on the other side of news, but I sure appreciate your time. My pleasure. Dr. David Yearling, Head of Clinical Pharmacology, Toxicology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto, 403-974-8255. We're talking opiates after this. Calgary Today with Angela Cocott, weekdays at 3 on News Talk 770 Calgary.